we're going to continue our teaching series called Humankind. If you have a Bible, uh, John chapter 7 um, is where we're starting, and we're going to pick it up in verse 53. Our series, Humankind, has been about Jesus, um, and we have been in this series for 15 weeks. Can you believe it? 15 weeks we have been journeying through the gospel accounts of Jesus, and we've been looking not just at sort of a theology of Jesus and sort of the highlights of Jesus' life. We've been looking at stories about how God incarnate, Jesus, comes into the world and he interacts with other human beings, broken human beings like me and like you. And in doing so, what he is doing is revealing who God is, the way God thinks about us, and how God is working in the broken world around us. Listen, we believe that God created us. And if he created us, then as the creator, he knows how we should best operate. He knows the way the world should operate. And so when God comes into human form in Jesus, his goal is to reveal to all of us what God is like. So we get to read these stories about Jesus encountering real people. And it's not just about them and what Jesus has done in their life, but the same thing is true for us. As we read these stories, we get to learn that the same Jesus who encountered these people 2,000 years ago is the same Jesus who encounters us today. Now, I worked really hard to try to figure out some fun introduction for this message. Like, I thought of stories of my kids and all that, but ultimately I came up with absolutely nothing, zero. I got nothing for you in a fun way to introduce this, so I figured I would just start here and just plain and simply read the text. So if you have the Bible, you can open it up, turn it on, um, you can look online and we'll have like a, at the bottom of the screen, it'll pop up as here as well. But plain and simple, let's just read the story and let the story speak to us and read us as well. Verse 53, then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Amen? The title of my message is Freedom. Because what we see in this story is an introduction to the kind of freedom that Jesus offers us. What is freedom? What do we need freedom from and what do we do with our newfound freedom? These are the three questions that this passage speaks directly to and it's my aim in the next hour and a half to answer those questions. 
That was a joke, by the way, it won't be that long. But in order to get there, we have to do a little work to unpack what we just read. Well, what's going on? At this point in Jesus' ministry, he would go into the temple courts in Jerusalem and he would teach. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what he would do. And after a long day of teaching, he would get tired and he would walk with his disciples back up a mountain onto the east side to a little village called Bethany. If Jesus had a Fitbit, the man was getting his steps in, okay? (laughs) Often on this mountainside, Jesus would get alone sometimes and he would pray to the Father. This would be important in our understanding of the text later, so tuck that one away. This story happens during this point of time in Jesus' ministry. Jesus is also unofficially on trial. There's this crew of people, the Pharisees and their little henchmen, the scribes, and uh, they have been on the offensive to try to prove that Jesus is a fraud, that he is up to no good. But the thing is, is up until this point, every attempt to try to get Jesus um, has backfired really badly in their faces. So they get desperate, and they set up a trap. Now, if you are new to the Bible, the Pharisees are the religious teachers of the day. And uh, in many ways, for most of the people at this time, the Jewish people in particular, the Pharisees were kind of like heroes, which I know is hard to understand, but there's this sort of idea that these guys had a moral perfection to them that was important, and they sort of idolized them as heroes. We would never do that today. And scribes, scribes are the people who wrote everything down. Listen, not many people were actually literate in these times, but they were, which meant they had a really unique skill set. They wrote down the teachings of the Pharisees, but they also copied down texts of the Bible, which means they knew their Bible very well. They had to. And then we're introduced to a woman. We don't actually know a lot about this woman. We do know that history has not been kind to women. Most societies have rarely given them rights. And we know that in other places, Jesus actually confronts the cultural norms of misusing women, especially in regards to the marriage covenant. But for her, we don't know much about her story. The word here used for woman is better translated wife. So what we do know is that she's married and she has been caught in an adulterous relationship. And these religious leaders, they have decided to use her mistake, to capitalize it in their ongoing attacks against Jesus. They use religion as a weapon against this woman. Some things have never changed. And they bring forth an accusation against her, and they use Scripture, the Bible, to defend their accusation. They say this, in the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? It's interesting. If the law said that, then why haven't they already done it? The reason why is because They want to catch Jesus on the record. Remember, there are scribes there. So in the words of the great Admiral Akbar, it's a trap. Lane, TJ, that was for you. I know. If you don't know who that is, shame on you. I'm joking, joking, kind of. (laughs) You know, it's interesting that these guys are actually in violation of the very law that they're quoting. 
Because the law required the partner that the crime has been committed with to actually be present. But lo and behold, guess what? The man is nowhere to be found. This isn't a legitimate trial, it's a trap. And they are conveniently misusing scripture to justify their actions. What's also interesting is the heart behind the original law in and of the first place was to prevent evil from running rampant in the community. And the irony here is that these men are actually allowing evil to persist on a deeper level within the community. Right? Not only are they not following the law, but they are not following the spirit that is embodied in the law either. And in doing so, they are not representing God at all. I want you to imagine the scene. Powerful men, the most powerful men in Jewish society at the time, dragged this woman in all of her shame to the most sacred place, the temple, in front of crowds, crowds that are easily manipulated because some things don't change. Easily manipulated to now be on the side of the Pharisees and the scribes, this woman stands for who knows how long in the midst of everyone in all of her shame, hearing accusations about her mistakes and the things that she has done wrong. There is a thirst for blood in the air, and her life is on the line. She must be terrified. And isn't it interesting that it doesn't seem like anyone even cares to hear her story? No one seems to even care about the circumstances that led up to the situation she was found in. It just doesn't seem to matter to any of them. And then a demand is made of Jesus. What did you say? (laughs) But all Jesus does is stoop down and he draws in the dirt. What is Jesus doing Well, there's a lot of theories, and I think they're interesting, so I want to share some of them. And um, one of the theories is that Jesus is frustrated. And maybe frustrated is not even a strong enough word. He's angry because he sees right through the intentions of the Pharisees and the scribes, and he knows what's happening in this very instance. And we've sort of learned this as parents with a, a child with some sensory issues that sometimes there's this need to sort of ground themselves, draw in the dirt or the sand. Something about it allows them to just sort of calm their emotions down. And some people think here that in Jesus's anger, in order not to respond in his anger in a way that he shouldn't have, he might just be drawing in the dirt to kind of allow him to think and process. Um, other people think that Jesus is writing their names in the dirt. And he's writing something that connected to their names, maybe the names of their mistresses. Ooh, that would be scandalous. <laughs> or maybe he's writing out the sins that they have committed, the things that they have done that, um, if known in public, it would be shameful to them. I don't know what Jesus is doing, but there's, a, there's an old tradition that what Jesus was actually doing is writing out the very references to the very verses that these guys are quoting. And in doing so, he doesn't have to say much because if it's there and it's right in front of them, they then have to read it and see that their way of putting that into practice is anything but the heart of God. Again, we don't know exactly what he was doing. Maybe it was a combination of many of those things. But whatever he he did, right, in that whole situation, we know that it had impact. So Jesus draws on the ground and they ask again and then he straightens up. And he gives them an answer. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he goes right back down to the dirt 
and he starts drawing in the dirt again. Again, I, I don't know what was said, but I do know that whatever he did and whatever he said and whatever he wrote, it changed the entire atmosphere. Because one by one, the accusers leave. And Jesus is now found left alone with this woman. <laughs> I can't imagine the journey this woman had gone through in this story. You have to understand at the culture in this time, the chances of a woman walking out of a situation like this alive were slim to none at all. She had to, in this moment, accept that these were her last breaths on this earth. That this was going to be the very end, and it was going to be a brutal way to go. And yet, Jesus is on the scene. And so what normally happens doesn't happen. And all of the people that would normally be justified culturally in their sort of violence towards this woman are gone and all that is left is Jesus. I don't know how long it took, but I promise you it went by a lot longer than it took me to read it. And now Jesus does something that no one up until this point has done. He speaks to her. And in doing so, he in his acknowledgement of her, he gives her dignity. Notice everyone else threw slander and accusations at her. Everyone else uses her as a tool or as a pawn. Everyone else had dehumanized this woman, but not Jesus. <clears throat> not only does he speak to her, but then he gives her room to speak as well. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? By the way, the word here used for woman is not derogatory. <laughs> Jesus sometimes uses that same word for his mom, and we know Jesus loved his mom, right? It's gentle, and it's endearing. It's a relational word, which is why she responds, no one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. I imagine this is like a first century mic drop moment. Right? Something that this woman and anyone who was left would never forget. That's why we're reading it 2,000 years later. Now, Jesus ends his discourse with this woman by saying, go and leave your life of sin. And this is significant. Um, what does that actually mean? That's a question that's so important. And if we don't understand it, we're going to misapply this text to our lives and we're going to misrepresent what God's heart is for other people in response to sin as well. So we have to take a moment to talk about sin. And I recognize sometimes in the church when we talk about sin, we have one of two errors. Either we're going to be on one side where we're just constantly beating you up for your bad behavior, or we're going to be on the other side where we don't talk about anything that could be bad or wrong in your life. I'm going to try to do something that's different. I want to try to toe the tension here. Because when Jesus talks about sin, his understanding of it is so much deeper than what we typically think of it as being today. And in doing so, in that tension, my hope is, is that you would see that his ultimate goal for her is freedom. So I'm going to do that by asking you a question, and it's rhetorical, so you don't have to answer it out loud, but I want you to answer it in your own soul. Is Jesus simply interested in her cleaning up her act? Is he just interested in her getting her behavior right? Is that what Jesus cares about? 
Are we looking at a story here about our behavior? What we should be doing or what we should be doing? Well, I'm gonna give you the answer to those questions, no. (laughs) Jesus' own language reveals his understanding of sin, and that's this, that it is a corrupting and enslaving force we need freedom from. There's a word uh, for sin that's translated throughout the Bible with this picture, this concept of missing the mark. Now, if I were to put a uh, dartboard straight ahead of me, right in front of the camera, and you gave me 10 darts, I promise you I would miss every single one of the bullseyes with every one of those 10 darts, right? The idea often that we talk about in sin is all of those misses are the bad behaviors, but the bullseye, that bullseye is the good behavior. That's what we're trying to aim for. But our sin is when we miss it. We miss the mark. So that means that righteousness then, if I'm following, if you're following me, is when you hit the bullseye. Righteousness is when you do the good things. And I just want to say that while there's ideas within those two definitions that are biblical and right, they sort of are too myopic for the understanding of sin and righteousness that Jesus had. They're too small-minded for the bigger picture of what Jesus is up to. So let me clear this up. Sin is the corruption of God's good world. One of my favorite books is The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And if you haven't read it, it's kind of a weird book. Lewis writes from the perspective of a demon writing to other demons. And they're writing about how to tempt human beings into not trusting God. How to tempt human beings away from knowing Jesus. And so you kind of have to read the book backwards, because when they refer to the enemy, they're actually referring to God, and um, when they're referring to their master, they're referring to the Satan, so you kind of have to read it backwards, but I want to read this section of the book to you, because I think he's onto something vitally important into us understanding the nature of God and the nature of sin. Um, It's going to appear on the screen as well, so you can read it in your mind as I'm reading it out loud if you want to. It says it's he, referring to God, is a hedonist at heart. All of those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses, they're only a facade. They're only like the foam on the seashore, out at sea, out in his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. He makes no secret of it, and at his right hand are the pleasures forevermore. I don't think he has the least inkling of that high and austere mystery to which we rise in this miserific vision. He's vulgar, Wormwood. He has a bourgeois mind. He has filled his world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working, Everything has to be twisted before it is of any use to us. We fight under a cruel disadvantage. Nothing is naturally on our side. Twisted before it is of any use to us. Nothing is naturally on our side. Lewis is brilliant. Sin is the corruption of all the good things that God has made in this world for us to enjoy. So sinning is living in that corruption. Have you ever had food poisoning? Man, I have eaten some good pizza that did wrecked havoc in my stomach. Anyone with me? You ever wonder why in Genesis, the, the, the knowledge of good and evil manifests in food? Ever think about this? It's like the original food poisoning. I think we could call it that, not the original sin. 
it's because I don't think it's just about doing something bad, taking the fruit. It was about ingesting it and then allowing its effects to then corrupt us from the inside out. That's what sin is. It's a corruption of something. And the corruption leads to a brokenness in our relationships with one another and ultimately a betrayal and a brokenness in our relationship with a loving God. So what's been ingested in the human heart is sin, and sin is eating the corrupted food and then experiencing the consequences of it. And here's the, the nature of sin that I find so fascinating, and students in particular, this changed my life when I was just about your age and I learned this. Genesis 4, 7, it says this, God is speaking, and he says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to have you. The word desire in the Hebrew is tashuka. Can you say tashuka? Tashuka, you'll never forget it. And it literally means this, as a beast devours its prey. What sin's desire for you is to devour you, to destroy you, right? The thing about sin is it's got an insatiable appetite an unquenchable thirst, there will never be enough. And even if you pull away from it, even if you stop living in that corruption, you will have withdrawals and you'll be drawn to want more and more and more and it will eventually destroy you. That is the very nature of sin. Listen, pizza tastes good when it comes in my mouth, but I promise you, as soon as it corrupts you, it is anything but good. And that is the nature of sin. So let me get back to my original question. Is Jesus simply interested in changing her behavior? No. He is interested in saving her from the destructive, chaotic, and dehumanizing effects of sin. Now, I've read tomes on the word righteousness, and we really don't have an hour and a half to go through the word righteousness. So I'm gonna sum those five books up into one sentence. Righteousness is living in the blessing of a right or righteous relationship with the one who created you. So what's the difference between these two definitions? Well, one is based on your behavior, the things you do. Are they good things or are they bad things? The other is based on your heart. It's based on something deeper inside of you being healed, renewed, and then living out of that place in freedom. Now, this has massive implications on how we understand the text and what we do in response to it. What does it all mean? Well, the Pharisees and the, and the scribes, they were a picture of religious zeal. They desperately wanted to follow the law. In fact, there was a teaching in their day that if all of Israel could just obey the law for one day and not live in the corruption of sin, for one day Messiah would come back and the whole world would be fixed. No longer would there be brokenness or famine or disease or evil. Their belief was if just we could behave good for one day, then everything would be fixed. And so... At their time, they were a living picture of what it meant to sort of behave well for one day. And because of that, because of their almost religious purity, they were looked up to as heroes. But for people who are steeped in the Bible day after day and involved in their community and helping shape and teach the way people think about God day after day, the question arises, how does someone who is so involved in this way of living and teaching and so steeped in the Bible entirely miss the heart of God that it's supposed to represent? I have a seven-year-old, well, I have four daughters, but my oldest loves to help me write a sermon. In fact, she firmly believes that if I put together a good sermon, 
It's because of her. <laughs> no, she doesn't say that, but I think she might think that. So she asked me the other night, hey, Dad, what are you preaching on? And I, I have to be honest with you, I had to like think there for a second, how do I tell this story to my daughter in the seven-year-old version at bedtime? <laughs> because I'm going to be honest, here's my motives. I'm like, go to bed or stay up all night talking about this. I'm like, I want both. <laughs> so we tell the story in a way, and uh, I asked her the same question. How do you think these guys got here? And she answered me in like, what is profound? She said, Dad, I think they forgot that God forgives anyone no matter what they have done. <laughs> I started laughing and she goes, why are you laughing at me? And I said, I'm not, I'm not. I just, I think it's ironic that you know the Bible better than they do. You know God better than they do. Because in essence, this is the summary of what has happened. But how did they get there? I think there's a lot of reasons, but I want to zoom in on just one. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus talks about the end of the world, the end of, the end of days, the end times, which, by the way, the Bible says we are living in right now. It's said we've been living in them for the last 2,000 years. These are the end times. And what Jesus says is there's going to be an increased intensity of darkness and destruction. Wars, rumors of wars, nation against nation, famine, earthquakes, disease. Many will be handed over to be persecuted, and many false prophets will rise up to deceive. Now listen, I'm not going to try to decode that and be like, well, this is this nation, and that is, that's not my goal here. But there's a line that comes after all of that that I want to zoom in on, and it's this. Jesus says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Jesus isn't simply talking about people doing bad things. He's talking about the corruption that I talked about earlier, that sin running rampant in the world. And as a result of that, the very people that are supposed to be a window into what, a window to the world as to what God is like, their love will grow cold. Their love will turn inward. And this is why I empathize with the Pharisees and the scribes. See, it's easy to demonize them and to point fingers and be like, I would never be that person. But you have to understand the times they lived in were really tough. Rome was their global superpower. And if you didn't fall in line with the way Rome thought, you got the raw end of the deal. And by the way, these are a minority oppressed people group in the Roman Empire. So they're living already under the yoke and burden of overtaxation and no representation. And they're already living within a world where they are not valued or seen. And that kind of pressure day in and day out, it eventually can harden your soul. And so I sort of think like at first when I was reading this story, these are the bad guys. But then I started to realize, man, this is no different than me. How do I know that? Well, my Zillow feed has <laughs> been filled with farms and acreage over the last week. If you were to look at my Google search, it's like sustainable farming, living off the grid, and how do you buy a cow? <laughs> no joke, on Thursday I was preaching and my friend Bob texted me after I said this with a link, how to buy a cow in Washington County. <laughs> what does this have to do with anything? Well, listen, as a result of everything that we have watched happen in the world over the last two years, and then in particularly over the last week, there's this part of me that just wants to hide, that just sort of wants to run away. 
The source wants my love to turn inwards to me and my family. We're going to be okay. I'm going to learn how to farm and how to milk a cow, and I'm going to do those things. I'm not going to need anybody. But the result of that is this. The further I move into that, the farther I move away from you. And not just you, the further I move away from my neighbors who don't know Jesus either. And by the way, they don't, may not have the privilege to go buy a farm. Right? And this is my reality is that all of a sudden I'm reading this story and realizing if I'm honest, that I'm much more like them than I would like to admit. What's driving me to look up acreage on Zillow is my fear. Fear that we're not going to be okay. Fear that the comfort of the way I envision the life of my children isn't going to happen. And as I keep moving in that space, what it really represents is my lack of utter trust and dependence on God. But here's the crazy thing is I can trick myself into thinking that it's strategic, right? That I'm being wise, right? That I'm, I'm thinking about all these things for the good of my family, but really all that is is a front for the real darkness that's happening inside of my soul. <sighs> Man, Jesus meddles with all of us, doesn't he? <laughs> There's a line in Jesus... In Jesus, um, where he teaches us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is the opposite of your love growing cold. This is remaining open, remaining connected to the very people that make your blood boil. And there's nothing easy about that teaching, but I do know one thing is clear, is that we should look at the Pharisees with less judgmental eyes. And instead, we should look into our own souls with some sober reflection because not only could we be that, we are that on many cases. I wonder what the world would look like if we were genuinely committed to the teachings of Jesus. What would it look like if as a church we were committed to praying for Ukraine and Russia, Taiwan and China, the Canadians and the truckers, the Democrats and the Republicans, the vaxxed and the unvaxxed, the masked and the unmasked, the pro-CRT and the anti-CRT. You know what I mean. Instead of looking for which group aligns with our ideologies and creates the most comfort in our space, what if we instead traded that in for the teaching of Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Yeah. <clears throat> I'm kind of an action-orientated person. Like, I like doing things, and if there's a problem, I want to fix it, which, by the way, you're getting the long version of this sermon, sorry. But uh, I think about prayer, and there's this part of me that feels like what the world really needs is more action. And listen, I agree with that to a point, and I disagree with it to another point. Prayer should move us into action. Remember the corrupting force of sin? Part of my whole idea here that I'm teaching is that I have that in me and I need Jesus to renew me too. And when I go to him in prayer, it is when that happens. Listen, I have yet to be able to continue in my unforgiveness and anger towards someone who I am praying for their well-being. <laughs> and no action done in the spirit of unforgiveness and anger is ever going to produce a positive change. I've yet to stay closed-minded and hostile towards someone that I disagree with whom I've committed to in prayer. 
Prayer does change things in the world around us. But you know what it also does? It changes our hearts. It gives us the ability then to step into the chaos of this world with the heart of God and then make a genuine difference. By the way, this is exactly what Jesus had just done. The Mount of Olives to the temple courts, right? He had prepared to step into the accusations. He was ready for it, not to respond with an Instagram statement of this is what we stand for and this is what we believe, right? Just to put the world on blast, but to actually deliver something that could change the world of this woman and these Pharisees and scribes. To actually deliver something that mattered, right? He retreated to be with the Father and then stepped into the chaos. And this story invites us to do the same. It's interesting because whatever Jesus wrote in the sand, whatever happened, it has an effect and it seems to be the very challenge that they needed because they leave one by one. Have you ever been confronted with your own brokenness by God? Have you ever been alone with God? It is the best and most challenging place you can ever be. You experience this deep conviction of God moving you towards wholeness, and yet at the same time, no shame, just love, unconditional love by God. I think that's what some of these Pharisees and scribes were experiencing. Now, we know some of them were just bad actors, and they would go right on in the next chapter, and they would try to make Jesus' life a living hell. And eventually, some of them would go on to be the reason why Jesus gets executed, but we also know in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, that many of them would turn to Jesus as their Savior too. So Jesus doesn't condemn them. He never does. He invites them into the freedom from their sin as well. What about the woman? What this woman needed was her commu- from her community was compassion and conviction, but what she got was anything but that. It was just pure condemnation. Now hear me, adultery is not a victimless crime. What she did was hurtful and it was wrong and there would be consequences for her actions. But instead of the help that she needed to get her life back on track, what she got was condemnation. But what did she get from Jesus? Well, Jesus responds to her using a word that's actually really beautiful. It's a Greek word called katakrino, And it's the word for condemnation. And it doesn't just mean punishment. It means that there is connected to the punishment, there's penal servitude that follows that transgression. So in other words, what Jesus says of her is not only is she forgiven, but her debt is also paid. The debt has been paid by someone else. It didn't just disappear off the ledger. That debt was paid by Jesus. It's as if she walked into a courtroom and the judge declared her not guilty. And all of a sudden she was free to go. But as that judge got done declaring her free of the guilt of her sin, he derobes, he walks to the executioner's room, and he is slaughtered for her sin, not for his. This is what is happening in this story, and this is what we celebrate as people of God. We could not do anything to get out of the debt that we have, to get out of this um, dehumanizing power of sin over our life. The only thing that could happen is Jesus could step in and take the punishment for us. 
Um, Christians celebrate that on the cross. But the story doesn't end here with the cross. The story ends with new life. Jesus says, go and leave your life of sin. Now, that you're free from the dead of sin, what are you free to go do? <laughs> Bo Stern Brady, who's a friend of the church, is kind of on our teaching team here. Um, we had a staff retreat where she took us away and uh, she poured into us as a staff. She asked a question that has just been stuck into my soul ever since then. She asked this question, and I think it's a good question for you to ask as well. What is the lie you used to believe about God that you no longer do? I knew what my answer was right away, and I wrote it down, and I get to share it with you. I believe that God was more interested in my behavior than he was of me knowing how much I am loved by him. He's more interested in me doing the right things and avoiding the bad things than he is with me just enjoying the love of God in my life and living out of that. I think some of you may feel that exact same thing. But do you remember that Lewis quote? What are we free to do? Free to enjoy the goodness of God. This was his list. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. And the list does not stop there. <laughs> We are now free to enjoy God's good world the way God intended it. Paul sums this up in Galatians, and he says this, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. I didn't hear an amen in this room, but I'll, say, I'll read it again. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Amen. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. This point is, is that there's this propensity in us to get to the end of a sermon and go, yeah, well, what am I supposed to do now? Like, what's the list of rules to follow and the things I should avoid? And Paul says, don't go back to that. You have been set free. So live out of that freedom. The thing about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they didn't understand this, and the woman didn't understand this either. They both needed freedom. Not more rules to follow or not more rules to break. Freedom. <laughs> and an invitation not to step back into that corruption. So I decided I would wrap up my message this way um, in a benediction. I wrote it down. It's something we do here. But I want to invite you into something. If you would be willing to stand with me and open your hands. It's a, it's a posture of receiving. <sighs> and if you, like me, struggle with believing that your value or worth by God is based on your behavior, then this posture of having an open hand is presenting that to God this morning. Or if you resonate with the woman, where you have kind of been like, whatever goes, goes. Maybe God is gracious and forgiving. You don't see the weight and the cost of sin affecting your own soul and your own life. Today is also a day to put that in these hands with an open hand and present them to Christ. And let me pray this blessing over you. May you be a people who live into the lavish love and goodness of God. May you be a people that accept the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus so that you may live in the freedom from sin and the freedom to live as God has created you to live. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, thanks so much for being here today. We have some elders here that have uh, orange lanyards that would love to pray with you. If there's any reason why you need prayer, please don't leave here without that. Um, yeah, enjoy your week. We love you guys. Have a good one. We'll see you next week.